some years ago, I and my uh, first St. Louis roommate walked into a church service. After the service, he went off to the other side of the sanctuary to say hi to somebody that he knew. As I stood there looking around, I would have loved for someone to do the same for me. I was new in town, so nobody would recognize me, and I didn't recognize anyone there. So I just kind of stood there for a while, waiting, waiting, and waiting. All around me, I saw people talking and laughing and leaning in to show their interest, just not with me. After a while, my roommate noticed me uh, standing there alone, unnoticed for about five minutes in this sea of people, God's people. As some of you have heard, um, he later described the way that I looked in that moment like this. And there was Keith like a castaway, clinging to the lone piece of driftwood as he kept on watching the funship cruises sailing by. <laughs> Future preacher, of course. Uh, to say the least, in the midst of a crowd of God's people, I did not feel welcome. Fortunately, my first Sunday here was, was the exact opposite experience, and, and I'm obviously still here today. You see, even if we've never articulated it, we all have a sense of what it means to be welcomed ourselves. But what if it wasn't me who'd walked into that crowd of, of God's people? What if it were Jesus who had walked into a crowd of people? What would it look like for him to be welcomed? That's what we're going to look at here in, in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, meaning uh, Jerusalem's people, uh, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on, on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a, of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, uh, placed their cloaks on them, and, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So what do we see in here? Big picture, this is what they call the triumphal entry, or, or the first Palm Sunday. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, just as Zechariah had prophesied, as we see quoted in verse 5. We talked about that, that prophecy, and, and what it tells us about Jesus back in, in December. And yet Matthew, like the other gospel writers, don't just record Jesus' entry, but also shows how the people, how the crowds uh, reacted when they saw him coming, because that's also significant, and it's significant for us today. That's because in this passage, we see what it means to welcome Jesus. Notice how these people responded to him. Look at what they did. Verse 8, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. 
It was quite a response, but it wasn't the first time we see something like this. In, in 2 Kings 9, verse 13, we read this. They hurried and took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. And then they blew the trumpet and, and shouted, Yehu is king. As biblical commentators have noted, just as in the time of, of Yehu, laying their cloaks in front of someone symbolized the crowd's submission to a king, the very word used to describe him in verse 5. It continues in verse 8, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. John's gospel gets even more specific, telling us that they were palm branches. You see, uh, palm branches were uh, symbols of, of the Jewish nation as well as uh, victory. Uh, uh, palm motifs were common on Jewish coinage and in synagogue decorations. We just passed St. Patrick's Day. Just think of like what the shamrock is for the Irish, and you'll start to get the idea. This use of palm branches, together with laying their cloaks down in front of him, was like rolling out a royal red carpet uh, to the one that they welcomed as their coming king. It was a sign of, of honor, of submission, of, of trust, because of what they expected another to do on their behalf. Again, this passage is commonly called the triumphal entry, and rightly so, since the crowds were welcoming Jesus as their people's king who will triumph. That's what, that's what they did, but notice also what they said, like literally shouted in verse 9, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. That word Hosanna means O oh, save or, or God save us. And together with their, the rest of their shouts, they are publicly acknowledging Jesus as the long-awaited Davidic king, the Messiah. They're saying, this is the one that we've been waiting for, the one who will save us, the hero of our people, the son of David, the Messiah, our king. And when others asked what the commotion was about, they couldn't help but telling others about him. Verse 11 this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The prophet, who was also welcomed as their long-awaited king, the Messiah, the, the Christ. That's what it means to call Jesus Christ a, a, a king. So if that's what it meant, what it looked like, and what it sounded like to welcome Jesus then, what does it mean to do the same today? Well, it starts with what it means uh, to welcome Jesus as king. The, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, has a really helpful explanation of what it means for Jesus to act as a king, and it includes his ruling and his defending. You see, as kings would rule over a kingdom, so Jesus would rule over his people. He comes with a literal divine authority to welcome Jesus, to welcome his authority over us. And that requires a posture of humility. It means acknowledging that he has the right to be the final moral authority in our lives, to, to, uh, and to, to uh, put ourselves under that authority, to, um, to let him speak into all of our lives, which he accomplishes primarily today through the words of Scripture. And while, we take, uh, while that takes a posture of humility, Jesus tells us that it flows from a heart of love. In John 14, verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. That's 
exactly what we see happening in verse 6, where we read, the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them, obeying his commands, even when they didn't fully understand the why behind them. And that love that results in obedience would seem to flow naturally from Jesus' kingly role of defending. As that same Westminster Shorter Catechism reminds us, Jesus' acting as king also includes restraining and conquering all his and our uh, enemies, the things that would threaten us. Uh, for the Jews, the Messiah was the king, but he was much more than just a king. He was his people's champion. He represented them. He acted on their behalf. To put it simply, welcoming Jesus as king includes trusting Jesus to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Think of all the, the Marvel superhero uh, movies that have been so popular the last decade or so. And how do those stories go? The people face a threat, a challenge beyond their own ability to conquer. But there's always someone who, because of the power that they possess, can do what others cannot. And in the end, they do so in order to save others. In a sense, welcoming Jesus means welcoming him as your hero. And that's how, we, how the people saw him as he came riding into Jerusalem with his triumphal entry. In fact, some 200 years prior to this event, branches were also waved as part of a, a victory parade when God had delivered Israel from her enemies. God's people had trusted in a deliverer and now celebrated the victory that he had brought. And in Matthew 21, they were celebrating in advance what they believed he would do for them. But to welcome Jesus in this way not only assumes a posture of humility, but also trust. A humility that means you're no longer trusting in your own means uh, to save you from what you most fear. Friends, th this means abandoning our own personal self-salvation projects, which can be pursued in more than one way. We can pursue those through religion, or we can pursue those through rebellion. And so abandoning a self-salvation project uh, sometimes means we don't simply welcome Jesus as a good teacher, uh, if that's how our, what our approach had been, as if all we needed was simply the right information or instruction or enough good religious practices. That's what Greg talked about for us a few weeks ago. But abandoning a self-salvation project also means abandoning rebellious efforts that are driven by the, the belief that what will truly give us life and truly satisfy us could only be found on the other side of the guardrails of God's commands. That's repentance, which we heard about last week. One rather common self-salvation project has to do with control and other people. And it takes a few different forms. It can look like asserting a domineering personality, or it can look like being a people-pleasing pushover. You see, either way, salvation is seen in terms of control. And letting go of that self-salvation project means letting Jesus take control of you. For some, depending on how we're, we're wired, uh, it might look like actually exercising self-control, uh, thus not trying to throw our weight around to get other people to do what we want. But for others who are maybe wired very differently, it might look like actually speaking up, maybe for the first time, when you know something another, when you have something to say that another may not want to hear, 
but they need to hear, and they need to hear it from you, and thus echoing the call to repentance of Jesus with your own voice. Like the crowds, welcoming Jesus in this way is also naturally leads to something else. It leads to proclaiming him before others. You see, not being ashamed to acknowledge Jesus as not only your king, your lord, your savior, but, but as the king, the lord, the savior. And yet while the crowds welcomed him as king and proclaimed him as prophet, we know from the rest of scripture that he also came as the great high priest, the one to represent God's people before God because he was God in the flesh, which means to welcome Jesus also means worshiping him as God, offering not just our cloaks or, or palm branches, but our very lives, bowing down before him, not just as a trusted advisor, but as our Lord and God, singing his praises just as those in Jerusalem had done. All of this shows us what it means to welcome Jesus as the king that we humbly welcome to rule and defend us, trusting in him rather than our own means, worshiping him and proclaiming him for others. If that's what it means, what keeps us from welcoming Jesus this way? Look at verse 10. As the result of Jesus' entry and all the fanfare that came with it, it says the whole city was stirred. And while we might assume that the whole city was excited to, to see their long-awaited king and read that phrase in light of that assumption, we know from what follows not everybody was excited about the attention that Jesus was getting. That word translated stirred is normally used to mean to shake or, or agitate or, or cause to tremble. Jesus was not welcomed by all. In fact, the reception he got for many who held a religious authority in that city was the opposite of a welcome. And it likely left them shaken, agitated, even trembling. You see, Jesus challenged them. He, he exposed them. And yet he enters Jerusalem bearing the signs of, of the one who has the right to rule. And if we don't want Jesus coming to us in this way, his arrival could also leave us stirred or even trembling. You see, a throne is by definition a one-seater. And we may not want to remove our backsides from it so that Jesus can take that place over our lives. And as a result, we may not welcome Jesus in this way. A while uh, back, when I, when I moved back to St. Louis, I got a chance to catch up with a, another former roommate who said, let's go to the art museum to philosophize, he said. I was like, okay. As we talked, he told me that he had uh, secularized. He shared some of his thoughts, uh, which I assured him were not necessarily in conflict with being a Christian, just with the brand of it that he had grown up with. But eventually he got to what he was really talking about. He said, I no longer view the Bible, the, the scriptures that all point to Jesus as a moral authority. And thus he no longer welcomed Jesus' rule over his life. Just like the many who were stirred at Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. And but in that same verse, we also see that some in that city knew that there were people making a big deal out of someone. They just didn't know him. In verse 10, they ask, who is this? 
It's the same, in the same way, we too uh, can see that some people make a big deal out of Jesus, but we, don't, but we don't actually know him ourselves, or at least not in a way that would lead to welcoming him like we see in this passage. Uh, one friend who uh, grew up in a very different religion uh, once shared how she and her friends would often make fun of Christians because of how they seemed so gaga about Jesus. Uh, what they had been taught in, in their tradition wouldn't lead anybody to, to lead, leave Jesus this type of a welcome. And they weren't about to become the very people that they loved to mock. Either of these things could keep us from welcoming Jesus as we ought, and yet what seems far more common is that uh, someone seems to welcome Jesus at first, but then something happens. It's worth noting that the Jerusalem crowd yelling, Hosanna! And to their long-awaited king will soon give way just a few days later to the crowd yelling, we have no king but Caesar, and crucify him. You see, if you're following a crowd, crowds can change direction. Instead of seeking what it would mean to live as if Jesus is king, we can accidentally just instead follow the momentum of those around us and let those things carry us. That's why so many seem to leave their faith behind when they leave home. Uh, when they're no longer surrounded by a believing crowd, they get carried away by another crowd. It can reveal whether the faith that they had long professed was a first-hand faith or a second-hand faith. Maybe they'd borrowed it for years but never had made it their own. When I see individuals walking away from the faith, I've learned to take a look at their friends, knowing that to whatever extent their faith depended on their other person's faith is the degree to which their own faith was going to waver. But sometimes the crowds have nothing to do with it. You see, another reason we might not welcome Jesus as we ought can come when worshiping Jesus as King, as, as our Lord, gets in the way of what we, what we want more. Maybe it's, it's the approval of the people that seems significant, that can help us get ahead, that are part of our, the in-crowd. Maybe it's our, our personal sense of comfort. Or maybe it's the forbidden fruit that we seek. A while back, I was catching up with another pastor who went on for further studies when we graduated seminary. A scholar who helped oversee his studies once shared how a number of people that he met when, when he was in graduate school began to let go of their Christian ethic right about that time. Delayed gratification was no longer cutting it for them. And in their beliefs, when their beliefs uh, and the way that they were living became in conflict, they realized that they had a choice in how to resolve it, either change their behavior or change their beliefs. And a lot of them chose the second option. As Jesus, being Lord, no longer fit how they decided to live, they began to adopt or construct new ideas about who Jesus was, ones that would no longer present a challenge to how they had chosen to live, the Jesus that they once welcomed was shown the back door. And instead, they welcomed not the one that had made them, but the one that they had made. But sometimes it's not Jesus uh, that gets in, it's, sometimes it's not that Jesus gets in the way of something that we really want, but that Jesus doesn't deliver what we had thought he would. You see, many in Jesus' own day looked uh, to him to secure a political victory over their enemies. They laid down their cloaks and they, they waved those palm branches because they thought they were going to welcome the guy who was finally going to defeat the Romans. 
And they sang the praises to a, a political, even military hero. Praises that may have sounded like a legitimate faith in him at the time, but were revealed to be otherwise later on uh, when they saw that his agenda didn't seem to square with their own. Many today also conflate Jesus' kingdom with a particular political agenda, so much so that what doesn't align with that agenda is often assumed to have some sort of dubious origin, either even if the actual origin are the very prophets that spoke about Jesus or the New Testament teachings of the apostles that Jesus commissioned to teach. And a Jesus who does not affirm and advance one's own agenda is not always welcome. For others, though, it's, it's when the comfortable life that we believe we deserve is replaced by unexpected, unwelcomed suffering, leading people to question not their assumptions, but to question God's character. And yet Jesus never promised freedom from suffering, actually quite the opposite. And as a result, his welcome for some seems to have worn out. And yet for some, maybe for most, the, the, <laughs> the failure to welcome Jesus as we ought actually comes in the form of a partial welcome. See, we're happy to welcome Jesus into part of our life, but, but maybe not all. Let me tell you a story to kind of help to explain that. Uh, when I was uh, interning with a college ministry out of state, uh, the four of us interns uh, lived with host families in the same neighborhood. Uh, eventually, all of us were moved into rooms of our own in finished basements of beautiful seven-bedroom homes. Two of us lived uh, with a house that had an open-door policy, where the interns were basically like part of the family, and even the other interns loomed pretty quick that if you stick around close to dinner time, they would invite you to come and eat with them. The other two of us lived in a similar home just, just down the street, but the door to the rest of that house was always locked, except for a few hours on Thursday morning when nobody else was around that we were given full access to the laundry room. Now, don't get me wrong. All four of us had been welcomed graciously into someone's home. Some of us were welcomed into all of the home, into a family. Some of us only into part of it, the laundry room. When I shared this with my wife, she said it reminded her of, of a story of a, a Presbyterian minister named Robert Boyd Munger, which uh, describes uh, what it means to welcome Jesus into someone's life in, term of, in terms of a home or a house with many rooms. In the story, some rooms Jesus is given free reign in. Some, the owner hopes that Jesus doesn't really ever see, while still another is, is locked to keep someone out and what's behind it stinks. And in a similar way, we might welcome Jesus into part of our home, in a sense, welcoming him as Lord in part of our life, but not all of it. Some doors still remain locked to him. And where the analogy breaks down is obviously that it's, it's not our house. It's Jesus' house. His name is on the deed to our lives. Abraham Kuyper said, there is not a square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ does not cry, mine, this belongs to me. And so if we fail to welcome Jesus by only partially welcoming him, what does that actually look like? 
Well, maybe we welcome Jesus as king or, or Lord in the sense of our religious affiliation. It just doesn't go further than that. Or maybe we welcome Jesus as Lord over our tongues, our, our words, but maybe it's only limited to colorful words that we no longer use while we continue to revile those not like us just with more socially acceptable vocabulary. Maybe he is Lord over our money, over our spending habits, but not over our relationships, not over how we relate to people. Or maybe he is Lord over our relationships, but not our money. Maybe our personal preferences, uh, our cultural backgrounds, or our political views become a filter that we use to effectively strain out any commands or any teachings that might challenge in any aspect of those things. Maybe we've been wounded, and Jesus' commands might challenge some of our coping mechanisms. Whatever way, we, <laughs> whatever way we are prone to offer Jesus only a partial welcome, it's worth noting that Jesus never intended to be your vice president of marketing. He wants to be over the whole operation, which means that if there is a door that intentionally remains locked to him, then we need to ask ourselves if we are actually welcoming him now as the owner of the house, as Lord of all, as our Savior, in humility and in trust, as our King. And if the answer is in any sense, no, then I have good news for you. That can change the way that we come to welcome Jesus Christ in this way is by first seeing how Jesus welcomes us. Notice again how Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. Riding a donkey was symbolic of a king who came not to make war, but peace. And what's his posture, his, his disposition, as he enters to make peace? Well, it says in verse 5, gentle. Or as it more commonly translated, humble. The one that we are to humble ourselves before first comes humble himself. For Matthew's first readers, they know this is not the first time that they've seen this word used to describe Jesus. It's that same word that they saw in Matthew 11 when Jesus uses it to describe himself, when he extends his welcome like this. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. You see, Jesus calls out to people who are weary and burdened and invited to come in that very state, not putting on a show, but showing Jesus our need, not covering up uh, their flaws, but welcomed as they are, warts and all, not pretending to have it all figured out, but welcomed in order to learn from him. Jesus welcomes us to come to him that we may know him, that we may follow him rather than the nearest crowd. Jesus Christ, the one who is the same yesterday and today and forever. So unlike those crowds in Jerusalem or the ones that we might follow today. And to do so, so that we who see our need, tired of trying to play the hero ourselves, might find rest in him. Jesus welcomes the weary, but he also welcomes the wayward. 
not just sufferers, but sinners as well. Uh, Think of the disciple whose words, who recorded these words that we see here. Matthew, who was a tax collector for the occupying pagan Romans, a a traitor to his own people, which in his day put him just slightly above slime. Or think of others uh, who were his disciples by the time of Jesus' triumphal entry. Mary Magdalene, for whom seven demons had come out, Simon the Zealot, who was part of a movement of freedom fighters, or domestic murderous terrorists, it kind of depends on who you were asking in that day, or uh, brothers James and John, who were so hot-headed that these so-called sons of thunder already had asked Jesus to send fire down from heaven to destroy people that would not welcome him, or Thomas, whose struggles with doubt became so well-known that even today someone who struggles with to trust another is called a doubting Thomas. Weary and wayward, sinners and sufferers are invited to come to Jesus in that state, into his kingdom where he defends his own, defending us, conquering our greatest enemies of sin and death so that our soul can rest from trying to always uh, defend or establish our own spiritual worth. And the way he accomplishes this is seen right here in the triumphal entry, where we see him riding in as a king who comes to make peace. And his peace offering, the sacrifice that he brings to make peace, is himself. The week that Jesus rode into Jerusalem was the Passover week. And the Passover meal uh, was uh, unique uh, in that it was a peace offering. And a peace offering was unique in that it was the one uh, offering or the one sacrifice that the worshipers would also eat themselves. A few days later, while Jesus was sharing this Passover meal with his disciples, he would say to them, this is my body. Take and eat. He was foreshadowing what he would do the next day and offering himself as a sacrifice upon the cross. A sacrifice that would not merely be a sign of peace, but that would actually make peace. A sacrifice that would cover the sins of Mary, of Matthew, Simon, James, John, Thomas, and all who would humble themselves before him and put their trust in him as their king. So that when we are tempted, treat Jesus as a means to some other end, Jesus in turn offers us something better, nothing less than himself, God himself, something greater than anything that we might treasure or seek, his life instead of our life, his perfect record in exchange for our sinful record, him being rejected that day on the cross where he died so that we would not be rejected after we die being willingly treated as God's enemy deserves so that we who often act like God's enemy in our sin can be welcomed as family. That's how Jesus comes to make peace and doing it in such a fashion that we finally give up trying to occupy the throne of our own lives, hand over the keys to all those locked rooms in the house that he was, <laughs> that he, uh, was his all along welcoming him as king, as Lord of all, one worthy of our trust, humbling ourselves before him. And as he grants rest for our souls, we find that we can't help 
but worship him and proclaim him to others so that they too might find rest for their souls as they too welcome Jesus as king. Jeanette Cliff George shares this story. On a short flight from Tucson to Phoenix, I noticed a young woman with her baby. They were both dressed in white pinafores. The mom was smiling, and the little baby was saying, Dada, Dada. And the little baby was darling. She wore a little pink bow where there would probably be hair pretty soon. It was just darling. And they sat down opposite me. Every time somebody went by, the baby would say, Dada, Dada. The young mother said that they were going home, and Daddy was waiting for them. Everyone was so happy, and we all enjoyed the little baby. The mother had a little thermos with orange juice in it. She kept feeding the baby a little fruit and then a little juice. It was a rough flight. Every time the baby cried, the mother fed her a little bit more orange juice and a little more fruit. I don't know how to get out of the story without telling you the truth. The flight was very turbulent. The flight was so rough that the attendants had to stay seated. All of the fruit that had gone down came up. I think more came up than went down. I think there was more up than there was baby, and it was startling. The carpet was not in good condition. It was a mess. Those of us on the opposite side of the aisle were not in good condition at all. We kept trying to tell the young mother it was fine. We were handing her tissues and things. Most of us have been babies. It was just, it was a very loving time, but a mess. The baby was crying and she looked awful. We couldn't cry, but we looked awful. The mother was so sorry about it. We landed. The minute we landed, baby was fine. Dada, dada. The rest of us were just awful. We began to get off the plane, and we all moved very carefully. I had on a suit, and I was trying to decide whether to burn it or just cut off the sleeve. Have you ever tried to get away from something really unpleasant and it was you? Well, that's the way that we were. It was, it was really bad. I looked out of the plane, and there waiting was the young man who had to be daddy. White slacks, white shirt, white flowers, and a little green paper. I thought, I know what's going to happen. He's going to run to that baby who now looks awful. I mean, the hair and the pinafore were dreadful. He's going to run to that baby, get one look, and keep on running and saying, not my kid. He ran to the young mother. I wouldn't say she threw the baby at him, but she did kind of leave quickly to get cleaned up. He picked up that baby, and I watched him as he hugged that baby and kissed that baby and stroked that baby's hair. He said, Daddy's babies come home. Daddy's babies come home. I watched them all the way to the luggage claim area. He never stopped kissing that baby. He never stopped welcoming that baby back home. I thought, where did I ever get the idea that my father God is less loving than a young daddy in white slacks and a white shirt with white flowers and a green paper? Friends, just like that father, God the Father didn't run away from you in the mess of your sin and suffering. 
But in Christ, who is the exact representation of his being, he welcomed you, embraced you on the cross. The one that Jesus rode into Jerusalem to bear, Jesus was rejected so that you could be welcomed and thus have all the more reason to welcome him as your king. Let me pray for us.